0: Let's uh, let's take a look at the passage that um, where they will come and speak to us from. So this morning we're reading from uh, John chapter eight, verses one through eleven. Is it going to be? Excellent. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning he came again to the temple, and all the people came to him. And he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery and placing her in the midst. They said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? They said, this they said to to test him. So they might have to change, excuse me, Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? No one has condemned you. She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more.
1: So let's uh, turn to John chapter 8 again, uh, as we take up our studies this morning. And um, you'll notice that there's a heading there over this passage that makes a lot of people a little bit nervous. Uh, it reads like this, the earliest manuscripts do not include John 7, 53 to 8, 11, which of course is the passage that we're going to be talking about this morning. Uh, some people wonder, should we be talking about this at all? You know, it's not in the earliest manuscripts. Is this, is this actually part of the Bible? You know, why is it here if this header is above it? Well, first point to say is this that there are a lot of manuscripts. OK? There are thousands of New Testament manuscripts, some complete, some in fragments. This is not in some of the earlier ones, but it is in some of them. And so we, we shouldn't have any doubt, because what happened was the early church fathers looked at this and they made a decision. And it was put in the canon of Scripture. There are, of course, other um, extra-biblical occurrences of the works of Christ. If you go to the very last verse of John's Gospel, it tells us that. He says that there are many things that Jesus did that are not recorded even in this book. And if they were all written down, even the world itself would not be sufficient uh, to contain them. And so, although it may not have been written by John, the early church fathers, as they looked at it, their assessment was that this was consistent and this was true, it had their confidence, and therefore it was put down here, and we're going to be looking at it today. There there is an interesting and a significant contrast right at the very beginning, because it takes the last verse of chapter 7, and puts it, of course, with the first one of chapter, chapter 8, where it says that they went each to his own house, but Jesus went uh, to the Mount uh, of Olives. Uh, this, of course, refers to the Sanhedrin. There had been a, an official meeting of the Jewish ruling class, and uh, at the end of that meeting, they were pontificating, of course, about, about Jesus. Uh, all these good old boys went back to their own houses. And in contrast to that, Jesus didn't have a house to go to. He goes to the Mount of Olives instead, probably uh, under an olive tree, you know, on the grass, or maybe in one of these booths that had been erected temporarily. You remember from last week that this is during the occasion of the Festival of Booths when many people erected these little shanty things to celebrate the time in the wilderness where they lived in tents as they, as they traveled through Maybe he did that, but at any rate, he went to the Mount of Olives in contrast uh, to them. And uh, it reminds me of another saying of Christ. You read about this one, actually, in Matthew chapter 8, verse 20. There was a man who was very keen to be a disciple of Jesus, and he said, you know, I'd, I'd like to follow you wherever you go. And the Lord Jesus said to him, he said, you know, foxes have holes, and the birds of the air... Have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. You know, he wasn't just talking about his poverty; that was true. He was actually talking more about the fact that the kind of life that he was going to live was going to be as an outsider. There would be nowhere that he could call home, nowhere he could lay his head. He would always be the perpetual outsider. He would be rejected. He would never be a part. Of the accepted way of things, like the Sanhedrin uh, were trying to define things, and that was the that was the life of Christ. There's a there's a Christmas hymn actually that picks up on this, and it goes like this: The foxes found rest, and the birds had their nest in the boughs of the olive tree, but thy couch was the sod, O thou Son of God, in the deserts of Galilee. Thou camest, O Lord as the living word who would set thy people free, but with mocking throng and with crown of thorn they led thee to, to Calvary. And so here is here he is he, he he early in the morning, the very next day after spending that night uh, on the slopes of the Mount of Olives, early he's here and he's he's teaching the people again. And uh, it says here that he sat down and he taught them. Now, of course, this is significant. This was the kind of formal way of of, of teaching. You know, that's where we get our our phrase, um, uh, a seat, uh, uh, a learned seat, and uh, a chair, a a professor's chair at the university, because officially, formally, they sit down with a sense of authority and, and teaching is conducted. And uh, he, he was recognized as a, as a, as a rabbi. And, uh, and, and here he is and he delivers uh, teaching to them. And it's in that sense that we should really be accepting the teaching of Christ. Um, we should place ourselves under the authority of the teaching of the Word of God. Not above it, not as an interpreter of it. Uh, not somebody who, who looks at it and assesses it, but somebody who places himself under the authority of God's Word. Uh, as the key to Christian living. It's to obey the authoritative Word of God uh, and to trust with all our hearts in it. So we're going to look at what basically is a fairly messy situation here uh, in John chapter 8. Because the, the Pharisees and the scribes pitch up again And they're dragging along uh, this woman who had been caught in the act uh, of adultery. And they they, they place her right in the middle of the crowd that is around the Lord Jesus. Now, they're just using this woman as a kind of pawn in the game uh, that they have to play. Um, This is not a point of genuine concern that they have. They're, They're not looking for Christ's wisdom, really in this matter. They're not looking for genuine guidance as to what to do here. This is a very, very carefully constructed trap that is being set for Christ. It's a little bit like uh, another occasion. You remember the one about, uh, should we pay tax to Caesar or not? Another trap. You know, they'd thought about this carefully. They felt they couldn't, they couldn't lose with this question that irrespective of how either of them were answered, you know, um, he would compromise himself. So what should you do here? Um, should you be stoned like Moses says in the law? Well, if he agrees with that, what do the, what do the crowd, what do the multitude think about the kind friend of sinners who they would come to respect? If he put himself at variance with the law of Moses, well, that just sets things up even more as far as the scribes are concerned, and they've got something to accuse him with. And so they felt that this trap was well thought out uh, and well set, and yet what he does is this he employs the same strategy as he did actually with the one about Caesar as well. He turns it back on them. You know, he turns it back and asks a question of them. On this occasion, of course, he, he, he stoops down, he bends down, and he begins to draw uh, on the ground uh, with, his, with his finger. All right, so what did he write? Well, paradoxically, there's been a lot of ink spilt uh, by commentators on this one over the year. I mean, the reality of the situation is it doesn't tell us what he wrote. You know, So basically, no, nobody knows. Nobody knows. A lot of people think they know, and there have been certain... Uh, Uh, thoughts expressed on it, but it doesn't actually tell us. That's not really the point. It is interesting that there are other instances in the Bible where we're told of God writing things with his finger. You know, the Ten Commandments, you know, when Moses went up on Mount Sinai, were written with the finger of God. When uh, Belshazzar, the Babylonian king, uh, was desecrating the articles of religion, you know, and... uh, Daniel was brought in eventually because over on the corner beside the lampstand on the plaster of the wall, suddenly the fingers of a man's hand were seen and began to write. You know, you've been weighed in the balances and you've been found wanting. So, I mean, there are other instances in the Old Testament where the the finger of God is mentioned, but maybe this was in their mind, but it doesn't actually tell us here what Christ did. But when he... When he came back up again for writing on the ground, what he said to them was the thing that mattered. And what he said to them was this, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And so the hunters become the hunted and the ground has kind of shifted here and the spotlight is now well and truly on the eyes of the scribes and in the Pharisees. And as he says that, he he bends down again for a second time, and he begins to write uh, on the ground. And this is a a time when they are caused to reflect on what he's just said, and and so should we, actually. So what, what would they have reflected on as Jesus had said these words to them? The one who is without sin among you, let him cast the first stone? Well, two things, I think. First is this, that Jesus was not condemning that woman. She'd been dragged in. Maybe it was true. Maybe it wasn't true. Where was the man anyway who was uh, implicit in this as well? And yet he doesn't condemn her. The very heart of the gospel you see the gospel has standards, but at the very, the very heart of it, the very foundation and most fundamental point about the gospel of Christ is that it is good news. It is good news. It is about God's grace to people who have fallen and who have failed and who have made mistakes. There is good news for them. God is gracious. I mean, if you go back to John chapter 3, verse 17, it says this about Christ. It says that he didn't come into the world to condemn the world. That's not why Christ came. He didn't come to wag the finger and to point out people's failures. He didn't come to condemn the world. He came into the world so that people would be saved, would be rescued from the predicament that they were in. And that is the whole point of the death of Christ. It is to deal with our fallenness And it is to deal with our failures, with our adulteries and every other sin that we may well have committed. That we wouldn't want anybody to know about. God knows about it and yet Christ doesn't want to condemn. They should have reflected and we should reflect on that as well. As he says in another place, I've come to seek and save those who are lost. He came so that the word of Scripture could be written in Romans chapter 8. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ. And that is the wonder and the glory of the gospel that Christ has not come to condemn. He hadn't come to condemn that woman. And they should have reflected on that as he is down there and he's drawing on the ground, writing on the ground, And it's going to be a moment or two before he lifts his head to see who is there. But there is something else that they should have been reflecting on, I think. And it's this, the state of their own hearts. You know, let him who's without sin cast the first stone. You want us to throw stones here? You want us to condemn this woman? Are you in that position that you're without sin? That you're going to set yourself up to be the person who does this, and of course their consciences begin to bother them. And their consciences should have bothered them. And it's a good thing that our consciences bother us. The problem, of course, is, as Scripture says, our consciences sometimes can be seared. You know, they can be scarred. And all that nerve-ending sensitivity stuff can go. And we don't feel a thing as far as our con- that is a dangerous situation to be in when we look at our lives and our shortcomings i mean the problem here would have been if every one of these guys had remained there but their consciences were bothering them and that's why they slunk off you know if our consciences are bothering us today like like Saul of Tarsus you know, on the damascus road hey Saul said the risen christ Isn't it hard for you to kick against those pricks of conscience? And and his conscience had been bothering him because of what he'd been doing to the church and the early Christians. Thank God it bothered him. And if your conscience is bothering you today, the the glory of the gospel is this. The only thing that deals with a bad conscience is the gospel. You go and read Hebrews chapter 10 again. And it talks about how no other religious thing can deal with the conscience, but the blood of Christ can do that. The blood of Christ, the death of Christ, because it deals with our deepest need, it washes our guilty conscience clean and helps us serve God. And so that should have been part of their reflection. So in a sense, if I was to kind of divide this into two bits, that's the mess, you know. What we're now going to look at is the message. The message that Christ is now about to deliver. And he now turns to the woman who's left, because nobody else is there now. And he says, where are your accusers? And he says, neither do I condemn you. Go And sin no more. Now again there are probably a couple of things that should be mentioned here as far as the message of Christ. And I think to a large extent they're they're summed up by another verse that we've already seen in John's Gospel. It's John chapter 1 and verse 17 which reads like this. That the law came by Moses but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ two things, grace and truth. And both they are equally, not say 10% one, 90% the other, or switched it around. If everything that Christ did had all of been grace, you know, that can degenerate into something that's just a bit kind of insipid and a bit sentimental. If it all had been truth, that can be very hard line or harsh. But it actually says that It was full, full of grace and full of truth. Remarkable, really. The ministry and the message of Christ carries both of them. And and that's summed up in these words here, isn't it? Neither do I condemn you, grace. Go and sin no more, truth. He needed to say both of them to her. Now, grace is a wonderful thing. Grace is an amazing thing. And it's, it's a free grace that the gospel contains, that is offered to all of us with all our own failures. There comes the grace of God. And we need to remind ourselves that, yes, grace is free, but grace is not cheap. Because grace is encapsulated and finds its fullest definition in the death of Christ, the Son of God, who loved us who gave Himself for us. The second point is this, that I have not experienced real grace unless that grace has changed me. I mean, I might talk about God's grace. I might say that I know something about God's grace in my life. But God's grace always changes people. And so if this woman, for instance, had gone away and had gone back to her life of sin, would she really have experienced the grace of God? God's grace always changes. That the, that's the message of our New Testament. That when a person comes to Christ, they might stumble and fall, but they will change. And the grace of God will be seen and expressed in their lives. They won't continue in the way they used to live. They will go and sin no more as a matter of, of lifestyle. And so both of these things are here for us. And this is Christ's message for a messy situation. He speaks as the light of the world. I mean, it's not without significance that the very next verse for next, next week's message in verse 12 is, is Jesus saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me shall not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And so the the light of Christ is is shone into this messy situation. And it's shone for us here today as well. Messy church happens here. Every Saturday morning, actually, there is something that we call messy church, 11 o'clock, that Mark heads up and runs. I must admit, when I first of all saw that title, I wasn't sure if I was happy with it. You know, I thought, well, what does that mean? Does that just mean we have a kind of more formal thing here and a messy church is folk just, you know, painting on the walls and running around and it's chaos, you know? And I thought, I'm, I'm not quite sure what this is. But then I realised there was a little kind of subheading. If you look at the little uh, um, thing that stuck out uh, outside the door, it says messy church, where, where mess meets meaning where messy lives meet meaning and the truth of the situation is that at some level all of our lives have mess in them it's the reality of living that there's a lot of mess in everybody's lives and we're not just talking about paint on the wall you know we're talking about decisions that are made behaviors that are ingrained Things that we do, relationships that have been affected and distorted. A lot, a lot of mess in a, a lot of our lives. And the gospel is not about standing on the sidelines and tut tutting and pulling in your robe so that you don't get splashed by the mud. The gospel is not about self-isolation and quarantining yourself from the virus of sin, you know, for 14 days. The gospel is what Christ was doing here. It's about being involved in somebody's life who had messed up big time. And it's not like being like the Pharisees with their wagging fingers and their hypocrisy. And so there is a message for, for all of us here uh, today. And it's the message to re-grasp what it really means to be a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, some of the early church actually really struggled with that. Acts chapter 10 tells us the story of Peter. And God told him, gave him a vision, you know, of, of dirty unclean animals which was symbolic about the non-Jewish world. You know, these dirty Gentiles out in Britain and all the other places. And Peter says, there's no way I'm getting involved in this. This is not for me. And God had to really impress it on his mind, gave him that vision more than once, until finally he realized that if he, if he wanted to get on board with God's way, he had to get on board with reaching out to the unclean. That's what the early church was all about. as they, It moved from its, its Jewish roots into a world with a whole host of different outlooks and activities and behaviors. And the gospel came to them. You just think of the city of Corinth in Greece. You know, and the, the loose living. The, the whole city was structured round about an idol temple and the promiscuity that was all part and parcel of this. The gospel came to Greece. I'm going to be reading a couple of verses from Paul's letter to the church in Corinth in chapter 5 and chapter 6. This is what he says in chapter 5, verse 9. He says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Really? But then he says this, I wasn't meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and the swindlers or idolaters. Since then, you would need to go out of the world. But I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone in the church who's like that. Then he says this in chapter 6, Don't you know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Then he says, And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. The early church struggled with this. And I think we struggle with it. And I think maybe all our services need to have that title, actually. We need to all be called the messy church. You know, because the church is for messed up people but can come to Christ and to the people of God who seek to follow Christ And Christ's message to bring healing and to take his message, the balance of the twofold message of Christ, which sums up the gospel. One, neither do I condemn you. Two, go and sin no more. I think it was quite significant that Billy Graham and his campaigns used to invariably finish up his services with one particular hymn, which was just as I am I come to thee that's, that's all that God is looking for he's not looking for us to clean up our game and when we're cleaned up and spiffed up well enough we can then be presentable to him he says just as you are just like this woman just as I am I can come to him and he is the one who will do the cleansing the cleansing of our consciences neither do I condemn you Go and sin no more. Now shall we pray. Lord, thank you for the wonderful gospel of Christ encapsulated for us in this incident here. We see the grace and the truth of Christ, the light of the world that shines on this situation and it teaches us. Lord, we pray for all of us as we listen to that word. We ask that if it is for us for the first time that we will see the glory of the grace of Christ. And for for those of us Christians who sometimes have this tendency to wag our fingers from the sides, Lord, help us to follow the example of the Lord Jesus. Lord, we pray for the messy church that happens every every Saturday, for those who were there yesterday. Help us not just to be do-gooders, feeling as though this is some sort of project, but Lord, with our heart and soul, to be involved in the lives of people, that we might bring to them the wonderful gospel that has so touched our hearts and is the only hope for our world. So, Lord, we commit ourselves to you today. Thank you for the gospel of Christ, in his precious name. Amen.